0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've heard and seen Dr. Ilhan Niaz on the podcast some time ago where we talked about Pakistan's political economy and the issues that it faces. Um, Dr. Niaz recently published a paper um, called Pakistan's Search for a Successful Model of National Political Economy. And so I figured I would invite him again on the show to talk about this paper and help us better understand some of the historical underpinnings of Pakistan's political economy, how it's changed, how it hasn't changed, and why these historical trends that we've seen over time continue to repeat um, even in the modern era. So with that, Dr. Ilhanyaz, welcome to Pakistanamy and thank you for taking out the time. Thank you for having me on again. I want to start with your paper and start almost at the not at the beginning of time, but almost the beginning of time in terms of the structures of the political economy that Pakistan inherited after partition and independence, uh, which is the way the British political economy operated. So in your paper, you write that the British political economy in the subcontinent was, quote, predictable, low taxing, low investment and geared towards austerity, end quote. Sounds a lot like what the current structure has been. But before we get into the current structure, just help our audience understand how did the British colonial system operate and why is it important for us to fully understand the structures and the operations of this system and the relevance to today?
1: Right. Um, The first thing is that the British colonial system, like any colonial system, Uh, aimed to secure certain benefits for the mother country, and those benefits were often secured at the expense of the colonial subjects. Uh, India, of course, was a very important component in the overall imperial political economy of the British Empire, not only as a market for British manufactured goods, but also as a source of labor that helped the British develop other colonies elsewhere in their empire, and also as a very important source of military manpower and naval refueling posts that were of course essential to the maintenance of the overall British strategic hegemony in Asia as well as in Africa. So with all of these things in mind, the British wanted to run India But they wanted to run India without spending too much on it. And especially they wanted to avoid any sort of heavy extra expenditure on what we would today consider to be development or health or education or other such things. While the British arguably spent more on these subjects than other colonial powers, the overall record of the colonial state in these areas is still pretty dismal. And the Indian economy under British rule experienced a horizontal expansion in which the population did grow, there more land was brought under the plough, the percentage of land that was irrigated increased very, very substantially. Uh, there was a of course, more village settlement, more uh, land was parceled out, etc. But there was very little vertical improvement in terms of the industrial or the productive capacity of the economy. And uh, this, of course, is reflected in the fact that uh, during the British imperial rule in South Asia, the population increased from maybe about 100, 120 million at the beginning of British rule to about 400 million for the whole of South Asia towards the end of it. But the per capita income, the percentage of people working in manufacturing, the overall structure of the economy remained essentially uh, that of a pre-modern society, a society that was there to Uh, provide a market for a more advanced society. Now, while the British were doing this, they also formed uh, important alliances with the Indian merchant elite, and they also formed important alliances with Indian landlords. So one of the key components of this alliance building was that the British offered relative security of private property, which is something that the Mughal Empire did not offer either mercantile or landed elites. Indeed, uh, the Mughal Empire ran a basically confiscatory political economy in which the wealth of the landed as well as the mercantile elites was subject to the fiat of the emperor and could be revoked or modified arbitrarily without any recourse to that modification. So what the British basically did was that they were able to lower their tax demand while opening up India to the extensive exploitation of its resources by British capital and by British private interests. And uh, in the uh, paper that you so generously mentioned, uh, I've uh, referenced wolmer's uh, work on the Indian railways in which he basically shows how the export of uh, railway components by Britain to India, especially the mechanical components, uh, enabled England to run uh, trade surpluses throughout the 19th century and enjoy a positive sterling balance. And this, of course, was in a way the government running a low-taxing, relatively speaking, economy itself but allowing private parties to effectively reap the benefits of a captive market, if you were, uh, that was extremely, basically rigged in favor of British companies and British industrialists and investors. So the British exploitation of India was, again, very, very interesting. Uh, the mobile exploitation of India was extraordinarily ostentatious. I mean, you know, you had the Mughal Empire extracting maybe 20-25% of GNP as taxes, 70% plus of that would go on maintaining the vast Mughal military machine, about one-fourth of that would go on maintaining the legendary lifestyle of the Mughal ruling elite, and of course there would be minuscule expenditure on other such things. Uh, What the British did was that they actually lowered that tax demand very substantially, and to about 10% roughly of India's GNP, sometimes nine, during World War I, two it may have edged up towards 12, 13%, but essentially around nine, 10% of GDP. Now, this was very interesting because uh, the leaders of independent India and Pakistan therefore inherited a legacy of underdevelopment in that uh, the subcontinent had basically missed out on nearly a century and a half of industrial development. And uh, whether that industrial development would have occurred or would not have occurred, you know, in the absence of British rule or in the presence of British rule is a very interesting question. But one of the things which the history of other parts of the world teaches us, such as Turkey or Egypt or Japan, etc., is that in general, uh, indigenous elites, when confronted with opportunities for enhancing their own power through modernization or industrialization, would often jump at the opportunity, even if that was a very selective type of industrialization or modernization that they wanted to pursue. But uh, India uh, did not basically get that choice because it was conquered and it was subordinated to this overall framework. So on the one hand, the framework was predictable. It gave property rights to a large number of classes that were previously highly insecure in those rights. Uh, India has been described as a sort of state and landlord's paradise during British rule. Uh, But this uh, paradise basically produced hellish conditions for practically everybody else that remained locked in extreme uh, rural poverty. Uh, On top of this, the British during the 19th century and also during the early 20th century uh, were hardcore advocates of economic liberalism in the sense that they believed uh, without fear of self-contradiction that free competition is good. Of course, by free competition, uh, what they meant was that they should be free to compete and everybody else would have to be tied down to the greatest extent possible. So India was not only uh, subject to that variant of the British, almost libertarian ideology of the Victorian era, but it was also used in order to exploit other parts of the world. So for example, a lot of the opium that the British were smuggling into China was in fact being grown in India and many prominent uh, trading families in India, uh, including the family of Tagore, they grew rich on those uh, exports of opium from India to China. So you have a very, very interesting sort of uh, setup that on the one hand, there is institutional development. On the one hand, there is a move towards a more representative form of government. There is a growth in terms of merit-based bureaucracy a rules-based bureaucracy, et But at the same time, there is also extensive uh, exploitation of the subject society. But that exploitation is managed in a, I would say, very scientific manner, in a very unobvious manner. So while the British uh, civil servants, for example, were celebrated for their honesty, and indeed they were very honest and very capable, i.e. not taking bribes, not doing all sorts of other things which arguably contemporary Indian civil servants and Pakistani civil servants excel at, they were presiding over a regime that was effectively transferring vast amounts of India's wealth under one pretext or another into the metropolitan economy, into the overall British imperial political economy. And this is something which obviously characterized not just India, but many other colonies. So it wasn't as if India was uh, especially mistreated given the horrors of the European age of empire. But it was certainly something which retarded India's development very, very considerably. Because the Indians, once they were colonial subjects, it took them a very long time to regain any kind of agency over decisions about how their political economy would be run. Even though by the first of the 20th century, they were being given greater legal rights and representation and other sorts of constitutional and political forms and Indianization of the services sort of part of the uh, rearguard action of the British Raj as the overall world environment became harder and harder for overseas colonial empires
0: like that of England to survive in. So this is, this is fascinating. Um, and I, as you were talking about the property rights guarantees for merchant families and elites, I remember sort of my own grandfather who was a trader, in colonial India and then migrated from Gujarat to Karachi in 47, often talk about that, that, you know, in, in India, in colonial India, the bureaucrat or the ship master or the railroad manager would never solicit a bribe. If something went missing, he would make sure that you would get that stuff honestly in time and take action against those who were stealing from you and things like that. And he talked about that often. Uh, But it's interesting, you mentioned that the extraction was unobvious in the sense that while the civil service was doing these types of things, the structures were meant to be exploitative and extractive in nature. Which then brings me to the second interesting point that stood out to me uh, was that, you know, it was an elite and landlord or a state's paradise, which Pakistan inarguably today is as well. And so how does this system then perpetuate itself post-1947, particularly through sort of the early era we see of institutional development, but then the coups happen. And really, Pakistan keeps trying these different political economy systems, but the extractive underpinnings of um, the structures of the economy doesn't really shift, even as much as we saw the shift in India, where Nehru was able to sort of you know, do land reforms and at least be more, make a more representative system. Why doesn't the same happen in a country like Pakistan?
1: Well, I think if we look at uh, modernization in nearly any country where it has taken off as a process, the mobilization of domestic resources is a very, very important component. that mobilization for any government must necessarily come by taking money from the wealthiest people and spending them where the greatest possible return on investment can be secured. In the Pakistani context, one of the things which at least has occurred to me while looking at Pakistan's economic history is that Pakistan's elite, whether military or bureaucratic or mercantile or landed, essentially arrived at a consensus that we are not going to mobilize domestic resources because that is going to be at our expense because that will mean that we will have to maybe give up a lot of our property. It might mean we'll have to give up our lands. It might mean that we'll have to uh, subject ourselves to much higher rates of taxation than otherwise we would be willing to accept. So in the Pakistani context, we very quickly started looking for ways to achieve economic growth without necessarily mobilizing most of those resources through domestic means. And this is a consensus that, you know, develops soon after independence. Uh, You see it uh, right from 1948 onwards. So I'm not saying that this uh, consensus is necessarily, uh, was initially motivated by corrupt purposes or whatever, but certainly that elite behavior in Pakistan Uh, that on the one hand, uh, extensive promises are being made about how we're going to develop Pakistan, how we're going to advance our country, how we're going to provide welfare, and so on and so forth. But in terms of the actual domestic resource mobilization, it is essentially the same as that of the colonial state. Uh, The difference, of course, being that the colonial state wasn't trying to pretend that it is developing India whereas the post-colonial state very much likes to pretend that it is engaged in a great developmental transformation of the society. So the gap between that pretense and our reality in terms of domestic resource mobilization is what has led our elite to seek subsidies. And those subsidies can come in exchange for military services rendered, i.e. during the Cold War era from the United States. Those subsidies were also taken internally from East Pakistan while that gravy train lasted. Uh, And of course, since 1980 or so, uh, we have been stuck with seeking subsidization through expensive international borrowing, which has locked us in a loop whereby every few years, We end up back in the intensive care unit of the IMF, they, you know, give us a few steroidal injections, we stagger out of the uh, ICU, and then we quickly revert to our earlier unsustainable practices uh, without sufficient domestic resource mobilization, and then we end up soon enough back in that earlier condition. So uh, I would say that, in general, notwithstanding political or other differences that we might have, uh, the one thing that basically unites all Pakistani elites, regardless of race, religion, uh, creed, caste, whatever you have it, is that they are just not willing to pay a fair share relative to the needs of the society in terms of the kind of resources that we have to mobilize. Uh, in order to actually
0: modernize our uh, country. So then, you know, if the resources aren't being mobilized and, you know, you mentioned the Cold War and the inflows from the IMF and one would argue post 9-11, the inflows came in after the Paris Club debt was rescheduled and Musharraf sort of, you know, sided with the United States in the war in Afghanistan and that led to a lot of inflows, um, particularly in my generation, when you talk to, you know, millennials, they, our, our memory is of Musharraf and then the transition and to this day, right? And so a lot of people will say, well, Musharraf ka zamana tha. Um, similarly, from older generations, you will hear Ayub Khan ka zamana Yaziya ka zamana better tha. Um, And they almost always universally blame civilian governments for not being able to grow the economy. And in your paper, you talk about this a bit. And I would love for you to explain why is it that Pakistan's economy has seen spurts of growth, um, particularly high spurts of growth during military regimes, whereas in civilian periods or democratic transitions, as long as they've lasted, um, growth has just hasn't been there is this really civilians being corrupt or is there something else that has happened? And I know you write about this in the paper and I would recommend people to read the whole thing, but would love for you to touch upon that and explain to people why that has been the case.
1: I think that a lot of it is coincidental in the sense that three of our military regimes have coincided with periods of intense American interest for strategic reasons in Pakistan. And that, of course, refers to the Cold War confrontation between the Soviets and the Americans in the late 50s and 60s. Then, of course, the Afghan Jihad and the American intervention to turn the Soviet intervention into Afghanistan, into their Vietnam. And then, as you mentioned, there is the period after 9-11, in which uh, Pakistan secured a sizable enlistment bonus for joining the US-led war on terror. So in all three of these instances, I find that military rulers have, of course, benefited, they've had the good fortune that their rule has coincided with uh, periods of intensive American assistance for these strategic reasons. Uh, Now, of course, if a civilian government had been in charge during these periods, uh, then quite possibly it may have also made the same decisions that a military government made. So I'm not saying that uh, the civilians would have done something differently, but unfortunately for the civilians, they weren't in charge really when these uh, bonuses started dropping out of the sky And as a consequence, uh, they faced a much more difficult path when they came to power and had to deal with uh, the uh, consequences of decades of underdevelopment. Then, of course, when it comes to growth, uh, I am myself a bit skeptical of using simple GDP growth as a measure of national improvement. Uh, The reason why I, of course, uh, say this is that increased GDP growth if, let's say, you, me, and Bill Gates are sitting in a room and his income increases by a billion dollars, that doesn't really benefit you and me. It benefits Bill Gates, of course.
0: So, If our our numbers remain flat, it basically means the average income has increased by $333 million, but that's not actually true. Exactly.
1: So I think that uh, our... Uh, economic managers, they have a romance with GDP growth, Uh, they consider GDP growth to be an inherent good. And uh, this, of course, is partly due to their uh, ideological indoctrination, training, whatever you might want to call it. Uh, And it's very hard for them to actually think past GDP growth into areas like what is your national well-being, what is your average household experiencing in the economy? Uh, these sorts of questions which actually relate to how your people are actually doing and whether they are doing better than they were doing before in terms of access to government services, in terms of social security, support, etc. Uh, it is a lot easier to basically say that you know GDP has increased by this much, GDP has increased by that much. And both civilian governments and military governments, of course, shoot for GDP growth. I would say that the difference in their growth outcomes would probably be explained by the additional funding available to military governments, and not to any inherently better thinking or planning or implementation by those uh, military governments. So there is a bit of a narrative, of course, that says that, you know, civilians do a rotten job and, you know, they are corrupt and they do all sorts of bad things. And there is, of course, uh, truth in that. But uh, military regimes in Pakistan have also proven to be extremely corrupt and extremely incompetent and extremely uh, bad at implementing policies and insensitive in the implementation of their policies. Uh, Pakistan has often paid a very high political price for the GDP growth that these regimes have secured. So, for instance, you mentioned General Musharraf and his enlistment in the war on terror and you know the rescheduling of the Paris Club debt and other uh, benefits that Pakistan got. But then, when you look at the State Bank of Pakistan estimate in terms of the economic costs of the war on terror for Pakistan, they estimated that the war on terror had inflicted, in addition to, of course, 70,000 lives lost, about $120 billion worth of economic damage on Pakistan. So getting a $20, million, uh, $20 billion bonus and then losing $120 billion is not exactly a good economic bargain. Similarly, when we look at the Zia era, yes, Pakistan did receive Uh, considerable transfers, both overt and covert, during this period. Our economic growth rate did hit the magic 6% target, even exceeded it a little bit. But at the end of the day, what was uh, Zia's legacy? A society inundated with extremism, with drugs and with small arms. Uh, Essentially, mopping up Zia's legacy has proven to be impossible for successive governments. And when we look at the Ayubira, yes, the Ayubira did achieve very impressive growth rates, very impressive industrial growth rates, especially. Uh, arguably, it was the most successful government in terms of bringing about an industrial transformation of Pakistan. It also built the water and power infrastructure that continues to be Pakistan's backbone. But the price for that was the antagonization of East Pakistan and the loss of half of the country in the crisis of 1969 to 1971. So while military regimes have certainly delivered higher growth rates, the costs to that society have been far greater. You know, as a Pakistani, I would have been much happier, for example, if Surawardi had been Pakistan's prime minister in the 1960s, and our economic growth rate had been 4%, but East Pakistan had remained a part of Pakistan rather than it leaving the, leaving the Federation in such a terrible manner. So I think it's important to uh, balance the political costs and not simply remain focused on the GDP figures, because those are highly uh, misleading. So if, for example, General Zia succeeds in, you know, bringing a diamond necklace to Pakistan, but in the process he sets the house on fire, what have you gained in the process? Even if the diamond necklace is worth a lot of GDP, your house is burning down under the weight of extremism and drugs and Klashnikov culture.
0: Yeah, and I think it's very important to, you know, understand this fact and many people, you're right, miss that. You know, even right now, as we speak, there is a debate, raging debate on 3.94% growth, whether it's real or not, whether the numbers are cooked or not. And I'm like, well, let's take them at face value, but then let's look at the high rates of inflation households have been under. Purchasing power has declined. So you're, you may be growing at 4%, but the vast majority of households in Pakistan, particularly during a pandemic, have either lost jobs or lost real income meaning that they are facing considerable pressures on their spending struggling to put food on the table and that shows right if you then look at data such as childhood mortality uh, uh, young people stunting um, you look at youth literacy rates you look at overall healthcare outcomes you see that pakistan's now in many in many of these national statistics of human development like as bad as or competing with sub-Saharan Africa, um, which is not something to be proud of. And you can keep growing at 3%, 4%, 5% and go into another IMF program. But the fact of the matter is that Pakistan is one of two countries in the world now with polio. Um, And so those are real measures that we need to look at. And I think beyond growth, uh, we need to pay attention to these because you're right. If you can have 3% growth and improve these things, um, that's much better than 6% growth that then lend, you know, lands you back into the arms of the IMF in a couple of years uh, once more. Um, speaking of where we are currently, um, you know, you write in the paper that in many ways the PTI government's economic team uh, is very similar to or made up of the same people as the musharraf government. If I am a Imran Khan supporter and believed in the narrative of Tabdili, I would probably howl in rage uh, after reading that. So I would love for you to explain how this is similar and in, in also like from the trajectory right we've had sort of this this democratic transition over the last decade or so. Um, Why is it that we sort of reverted back to a Musharraf era type uh, setup in terms of economic policymaking? Well, it's not just,
1: of course, uh, Imran in the sense, uh, because the people that he assembled have also served previous governments, including the PMLN or the People's Party government that succeeded Musharraf. So there appears to be a very, very... uh, short short list of people uh, that can be installed as senior economic managers in Pakistan and uh, they appear to rotate into and out of office uh, almost regardless of who happens to be in the government. Sorry to interrupt that but
0: Sorry to interrupt, but would that then be also, uh, in your view, evidence of this consensus of the elite that, you know, there is a very short list across regimes that keep coming in and going out because the consensus must remain the same?
1: Well, there could be a consensus or it could also just be a sheer lack of imagination. But the continuity, actually, in our economic policies is something which I find very interesting over the last 40 years or so that regardless of who happens to be in power, military, civil, hybrid, whatever, the box in which we operate remains essentially the same. Uh, Nobody actually questions that what exactly are we doing inside this box and could there possibly be a better way around it? And this is something which is alarming, given that a country as large as Pakistan, as complex as Pakistan, actually needs very, very serious thought about how its economy and society are going to function and improve going forward. Uh, Instead, we have this copy-paste from earlier governments. uh, And this is true not just of the economy. This is also true of civil service reforms or a host of other things as well that seem to be the same uh, faces doing more or less the same things under different dispensations. Uh, Yes, I do think that uh, the repetition of or the continuity of these office holders does indicate that they are considered to be safe pairs of hands, both from the perspective of the IFIs as well as from the perspective of the local power elite that they understand that within the established parameters of our elite hoarding and foreign dependence, they are only going to engage in minor tinkering uh, with the way things are. And the objective of that minor tinkering, of course, will be to maybe boost GDP growth at some stage in the future to 5-6% a year for a few years. And then we can all point to that, that, you know, those were the great days of our economic history when our GDP was growing at 6% a year. Even if as while that GDP is growing at, you know, four, five, six 5, 6% a year, uh, people are having to go without, you know, three meals a day and household incomes are contracting and the labor market is contracting and everything is becoming less competitive in Pakistan relative to uh, peer group economies and we're essentially running out of countries to fall behind. So that is something which uh, I think suits uh, the people in power. Uh, Though uh, I also detect a strong element of ideological hegemony in this uh, in that uh, many of our economists, many of our people in these positions uh, genuinely don't Think that there is anything else to think about. Uh, there is a kind of uh, monopolization of the discourse on the economy by a handful of neoclassically oriented economists in Pakistan. And uh, they also, you know, replicate and essentially uh, uh, mime the ideas that uh, originate in the West. So there is also, I think, a certain intellectual laziness that characterizes our elite, uh, that uh, they don't really want to question the assumptions, uh, because that would be inconvenient for them to perhaps do so. Then they'd have to, you know, think of something else to replace it. And it also doesn't really suit them uh, to uh, question those assumptions.
0: So from your perspective, then, I mean, let's look at the world around Pakistan. like Globally speaking, I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C. There's been a big shift in terms of economic thinking, even within the Biden administration has come in. Modern monetary theorists have gotten the ears of the policymakers both on the Hill and inside the administration. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Biden himself has talked about the need for large deficit spending that seeks to achieve full employment or close to full employment, setting aside the neoliberal argument that we must contain inflation. And that has led to a backlash within the Democratic Party. You've had people like Larry Summers continue to question um, that w- whether it's something like this is actually good for the country or not, it, purely from the sense of like, this will cause inflation and we must, you know, keep, in, keep these things in mind and full employment has its own downsides. And there's a big debate going on around what we need to do. Um, additionally, there has been sort of this focus increasingly in OECD countries of, you know, getting rid of tax havens, rationalizing corporate tax structures, the Biden administration has started to talk to European countries about making sure that the low corporate tax rates are a thing of the past. Do you then see this sort of shift emerging in terms of the ideological hegemony of the or neoliberal economic thinking sort of breaking in the West in particular during the pandemic? Do you think that then has an impact in terms of how Pakistan's own economic setup and economic policymaking uh, evolves or is that still uh, something that is not going to happen anytime soon?
1: I think that uh, whatever uh, changes might occur within Western discourse on economics and on the overall structure of their political economies, uh, if it moves towards a more liberal or a more progressive direction and starts to think in terms of it's okay to have government basically doing big things for everybody and the market does not have all these solutions, etc. Then logically, uh, people in Pakistan or economic uh, thinkers in Pakistan or practitioners in Pakistan uh, will experience some trickle-down effect down the line. Having said this, uh, because uh, Pakistan is in the grips of an IMF structural regime, I am not sure that it will be given the space by even an enlightened uh, American administration to do things that would increase our debt or that would increase uh, our level of expenditure beyond uh, the same limits decreed by the imf uh, i would also think that the struggle uh, against this uh, kind of thinking is far from over because in 2008 9 when the great recession hit there was you know a sort of out outpouring of support and sympathy that you know we have to give stimuluses, we have to, you know, get you know counter-cyclical on the economy. And much of that stimulus and much of that actually ended up in the hands of banks and big companies, et cetera, and relatively little actually made it uh, to the people who needed it most. Uh, in the American context, the thing is that the political cycle uh, is extremely competitive basically every 18 months you are you know, locked in an electoral uh, struggle at one level or another of the government. And it is very hard, I think, even now, for the Democrats to really build the kind of consensus uh, that FDR was able to build back in 1933 during the Great Depression, that this is how we have to reorient. Certainly, uh, I think Pakistan would benefit, uh, but that benefit would, of course, be conditional on our own ability to think about our problems and then to implement schemes that work for us. Because during 1945 to 1970, which is you know the great age of you know Keynes in the West, uh, Pakistan was pursuing a growth strategy. Our growth was pretty decent in the 50s and 60s, uh, but that didn't actually translate into uh, socioeconomic or political stability. It did not actually translate into economic takeoff. So, yes, changes in the Western discourse that move them away from uh, this kind of uh, neoclassical straitjacket are good for everybody, basically. Uh, how much we are able to get from that change. Uh, is open to question. Certainly in the past, we were not able to benefit from a more liberal or progressive line of thinking in Western
0: economic thought. And then from speaking in terms of the domestic situation in the country, it's political polarization is rampant. Um, You have leading political parties, you know, we've talked about consensus on the economy in terms of elite consensus, but at least overtly they're struggling against each other, not willing to talk. And there is a lot of reform structurally that needs to happen to make the economy more inclusive, to make the economy work for the majority of households, not the minority. Um, Are you one of the opinion that at some level we will need political consensus to emerge, to push through some of these reforms? Um, And if so, Uh, How optimistic are you of this even happening, let's say, in the next five years? Because we have elections coming up in Pakistan in the next two and a half years or so. So how does reform or how does the structural pillars of the economy get rebuilt in an environment where, you know, the regime itself is what some may call hybrid, some may call selected, whatever that might be. The ruling party is not willing to sit down and the opposition in the same way, they're not willing to sit down and look at the big picture issues and seek resolution um, and move the country forward. Like how, does, how does change happen in that sense?
1: Well, I don't actually think that there is a substantive economic difference when it comes to any of our major political parties. Uh, Whether we talk about the People's Party or the PMLN or now the PTI, uh, they are all on the same page, more or less, when it comes to how to run the economy. Of course, when they are in opposition, they criticize the government for doing what they themselves did uh, while they were in government. And when they are in government, they blame their predecessor, for all the ills that they have inherited and claim that they are going to set the economy on a sustainable growth trajectory, which of course doesn't actually materialize, uh, but they then repeat when somebody else then rotates into office. So I don't actually think that our uh, political parties, when they engage with each other, uh, they are actually Engaging in a political discourse. So yes, whenever a party comes in and they impose austerity and the prices of commodities start to increase, whoever is in opposition, they start, you know, showing that, you know, they, they start, you know, posting grocery bills on the social media and saying, oh, look how bad things have become under this government. And of course, when they are in power, they'll do the exact same thing and have the exact same consequences. Uh, You can just look at uh, Imran Khan's own pronouncements while he was in the opposition on the PMLN's management of the economy and compare them to the PMLN's pronouncements on Imran Khan's management of the economy. And if you don't know, know who is speaking, you would think that it's quite possibly the same person who is making these critiques. So uh, this is a convenient, I think, uh, punching bag for all parties who are in opposition that they can blame the government. And when they are in government, uh, they can simply say that, oh, well, what can we do? We inherited this mess from our predecessor. So there's going to be two years of intense economic pain, but then we'll have some growth. The growth that happens is unsustainable. So then by the time they leave, we are headed back uh, to our favored Uh, unit in the intensive care. So I don't really think that there is a serious debate or a serious economic uh, argument being made by any of our political leaders. Uh, I don't think that any of our political parties has any serious capacity to do research on economics Uh, They don't have any serious economic policy thinkers amongst their ranks that can actually examine the situation and give solutions or give suggestions that uh, are contrary to the neoclassical programming. Uh, And the result is that they are essentially out of ideas beyond, of course, that, you know, one party will say that, you know, let's have some cash transfers. Another party will say, let's build some more motorways. That is the extent of the economic debate that the parties can get into. So we suffer from an acute uh, poverty of thought when it comes to our economic predicament. And this, I don't think, uh, is it's going to change regardless of who happens uh, to be forming the
0: government. Well, that is a very grim picture and a very pessimistic take, but I would say that I agree with you on that. And I think we've seen sort of this play out, right, in the last three decades, 40 years or so, um, in the sense that we, you mentioned East Pakistan and how they split up in 1971. At the time Bangladesh was founded, its average uh, citizen's GDP per capita was about 40-60% lower than that of his or their West Pakistani counterpart. And we've talked about why GDP is not only the measure, but just looking at that measure today, the average Bangladeshi's GDP per capita is about 50% higher than that of their Pakistani counterpart, and they have higher youth literacy rate, they have better female education rate, they have higher or lower child mortality rates. Um, Lower stunting rates. So, by and large, in all sorts of socioeconomic measures that one could look at, both macro and micro, um, they've outpaced Pakistan and and are much ahead even of India now. Um, And so, there's something to be said about a dearth of economic ideas and like lack of focus and things. And I'm not saying Bangladesh is perfect, it's an authoritarian regime with its own set of challenges. But by and large, at least over there, the elites have had a consensus to say, "Look, we're going to grow on o- our own wealth and that of the overall economic pie, but at the very least, distribute it in a more fair manner than what has happened in Pakistan." And I think that something is has to be learned from that experience as well. Um, before I let you go, I always ask uh, my guests for book recommendations. This has been a great conversation, by the way. And to those who are listening, um, the link to the paper is down below in the description. Do read the whole thing. It's a fantastic piece of research and you will realize a lot about how different things have been tried in Pakistan from free market fundamentalism, as Dr. Niaz refers to it, from the 80s onwards to socialism during the Bhutto era and everything in between. Uh, But really, the outcomes have been very, very similar over the course of the decades. So, Dr. Niaz, from your point of view, any book recommendations It could be on any topic, anything you've read recently or in the past that has deeply influenced you?
1: Well, uh, one book which I think is uh, extremely relevant to what is going on these days, not only in the United States, but elsewhere, is uh, Anand uh, Giridharadas's book, Winners Take All, uh, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Uh, That's a book that I read recently, uh, and I actually reread it as well, just to fully understand what he was saying, etc. And I found that to be extremely helpful in terms of, uh, you know, framing the problem of, you know, what happens when everybody actually agrees on the fundamentals and the fundamentals are wrong. And what happens after that and what kind of, you know, gimmicky change is then sold as a substitute for meaningful improvement in people's lives. Uh, another book that I would uh, recommend, which I read recently, I think it was published in 2018 or 2019, is Kasim uh, Zaman's "Islam in Pakistan." Uh, this is a short, sort of history of uh, Islam in Pakistan, and what I found interesting is that it basically traces the decay of uh, modernist thinking amongst. South Asian Muslims, and especially, of course, in Pakistan itself uh, after the country gains independence. And this is uh, something which is, of course, very important because uh, a lot of Pakistan's challenges uh, come from the fact that it has been unable to devise uh, a solution or an understanding of modernity that allows it to compete with the rest of the world successfully. And this is a huge problem that uh, in Pakistan, we're sort of trapped between a very half-baked colonial modernity and an extremely dangerous indigenous variant of medievalism that threatens to basically take us back to the Iron Age. And what Zaman does is that he explains with meticulous detail and research Uh, the decline of modernist thinking amongst the uh, Pakistanis and more broadly speaking amongst the South Asian Muslims. And uh, finally a book that uh, again I found extremely interesting and enlightening uh, is uh, Peter Ball's The Water Kingdom. And this is uh, a history of China told from the perspective of how the Chinese state evolved in order to manage the country's water resources and how that uh, management of those water resources are essentially what laid the basis for a large, unified, and remarkably stable empire uh, in China. So that is also very interesting uh, work, which sort of helps us understand uh, China's evolution as a civilization, as a state in the longer perspective. So, you know, before there was a rise of China, there was a sort of water kingdom. And one of the key elements of strength in that water kingdom was its extraordinary capacity for a pre-modern society, going back to, you know, the uh, early period of the Chinese empire, to manage and organize its agriculture, its intensive agriculture on a vast scale. And that is something which, of course, uh, constitutes the backbone of the Chinese state even today. So I think these three works uh, are very different works, of course, uh, but uh, they are all very relevant and they would all help us understand what's going on today uh, much better.
0: I've read Anand Giridass' Winners Take All and highly recommend it. It is a wonderful read. I haven't read the other two, so I will add them to my list, in particular Islam and Pakistan, because you know, I when I came to the United States in 2007 as an undergrad, I um, had no idea, for example, who Muhammad Assad was. And only later through, you know, finding different translations of the Quran and wanting to read and understand how the translations differed, I realized his deep influence in the early years of Pakistan's independence with Allah Iqbal, the work that he did after independence, the work that he did. And most Pakistanis have forgotten um, what his role was as an early modernist Islamic thinker. And really that modernist wing um, lost out. Um, to the Maududi camp in many ways and to the other, as you described, the medieval sort of ideology of the religion in the country. So I, I am going to definitely read that because it's something that I've been curious about for a long time um, in terms of understanding why is it that folks like Muhammad Assad sort of fell by the wayside um, in the history of the country and others who in many ways did not even support the idea of an independent Pakistan became the dominant ideological forces representing the faith uh, of Islam itself. So thank you for these recommendations. Um, Thank you for your time. Thank you for the wonderful academic research um, and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. Um, And I think we'll have you on again soon whenever the next publication comes out because I thoroughly enjoy these conversations. Always good to look at economic history or history in general to understand where we are today and where we may be going, right, in terms of how things change. So, appreciate you taking out the time and joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Take care for the office.